the Bible. Today our main text is Revelation 6, but as usual we're going to go back to the Old Testament and hit Proverbs 4, Proverbs 4, verse 14. Proverbs 4, verse 14. And it's neat how today the proverb of the day kind of um, coincides with the Revelation study that we're doing. And it says this. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. When we read this, we can kind of, if you're familiar with the psalm, Psalm 1 is is similar to this. You have here um, a father to a child explaining how to avoid and to make good choices. But again, even with God the Father, when he instructs us, he warns us, he guides us, but ultimately he's given us free will to make those good decisions or not. Now here's the reason, verse 16. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. Now that's interesting because the wicked, the evil. Sometimes I have a trouble sleeping or being settled in my soul if I've offended somebody or hurt somebody's feelings. But these people, on the other hand, somebody who's wicked, they can't sleep. It's madness. It, 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 they can't even get a good night's sleep. They can't fall asleep. They can't stay asleep unless they've done someone to hurt someone else. Verse 17, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. 18, now here's the good news. But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. And that's the good news. Those of us or those who choose the righteous way instead of the wicked way, uh, this is what's in store for you. In verse 19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. That's pretty amazing. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They don't know what makes them stumble. So there's this drive. There's this madness. It's, it's illogical. They don't even know why they do the things that they do. But they have this. You ever meet somebody like that? They're just hell-bent on destruction. They just have it in them to do these things. And I don't think sometimes they even know why they do the things that they do. But what we're going to see today in Revelation is the ultimate end for the wicked left on earth. The reign of the wicked finally comes to an end. Now, we've seen this in the scripture, men and women of the Bible asking, why do the wicked prosper? Why, Lord, do they seem to do so well? For thousands of years, God's people have been asking that question. And today, we're going to see that there's a finite point in history where God does judge the wicked. It all comes to an end. But the answer to that question is because God is merciful. God is long-suffering. God gives men and women a chance, a very, very long chance to uh, do the right thing, to repent, and to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But we're going to see here what happens to an unrepentant and rebellious world. So, Revelation 6. Now, the last time we saw that Christ alone is worthy to take the scroll from the Father and break the seals, if you were here last week uh, in chapter 5. And today we're going to see the seals are broken and God's judgment is poured out on the wicked and rebellious world, starting with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, probably this part of Revelation is one of the scariest parts in this book. Um, I I shared with you a few months back about 
Uh, I was at a class with a fellow officer that I knew from years ago, and he just all of a sudden started reading Revelation, and he, he allowed me to share this from the pulpit. And he got so scared, he closed the book, and he called his mother and said, Mom, I'm going to hell. <laughs> of course, he had to read the whole book. But I want you to understand that even if you're a new believer and you don't know the Bible that well, if you are in Christ, this isn't for you. This is just history that has to unfold. This is just judgment of the wicked that has to happen. Okay? Now, a little bit of precedence here in the Old Testament. If you are familiar with the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, in chapter 1 and chapter 6, he speaks of four different colored horses, which uh, interpretation is that they're like God's spirits that are going out on patrol through the earth. Okay, so these four horses back in the Old Testament, very similar descriptions. They go out throughout the earth, and we're not really sure what they do, but it seems like they're out on patrol. Now, if this is a similar uh, or a, a corollary to that or, a, or a, an ending to that, these horsemen and these horses actually do, and they're part of God's judgment. A little bit of a foundation. Um, and I go through this every once in a while. For those of you who are really in-depth Bible students, if you're not, don't worry about it. I will walk you through this. So if I'm losing you, don't panic. There's a few views of judgments with this. Uh, when it comes to the seal judgments, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, right? The seven bowls or the seven vials. There's the recapitulation or the intensification view versus the linear or the consecutive view. And what that means is this. The first view, which I don't subscribe to, is that as the seals are broken, first seal, second seal, third seal, all the way up to seventh seal, then you start to see the trumpet judgments. And the recapitulation or the intensification view says that these trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments are the same as the seals, but they're just more exemplified. They're just more detailed. Uh, I've read all 21 judgments, and I don't see that. The linear or consecutive view tells us that after the seventh seal comes the seven trumpets, and then after the seven trumpets comes the seven bowls, and they're all separate. That's the the view that I I hold to. Uh, Chapter 6 through chapter 10 in this book, because we're starting in chapter 6, is really that seven-year period spoken of for you Bible students in Daniel chapter 9, when the angel says to Daniel, this is pretty much the prophecy of your people. The 69 weeks, uh, or the 69 Shavuah in the Hebrew, Shavuah is a period of seven years, it's a week of years, and then the 70th week doesn't happen until the future. There's a gap, okay? Now, we know that the 70th week, the seven-year period, is mainly where the Jews and Israel are focused on because the church is not here anymore. The age of grace, the church age, has fulfilled itself. And it sounds confusing, but it's really not because God's uh, timetable, his prophetic timetable goes in in stages. And if I did it on a chart, which actually I did when we covered uh, Luke, you could see that there's an order to it. Now, in the seven-year period is what's known as the tribulation. The first three and a half years is the tribulation, At the climax of that three and a half years is the point where the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel and starts to aggressively persecute them. And then you have the last three and a half years, which is really bad, a really bad portion on the earth, where it's called the Great Tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble. And you see all this in the Old Testament. Uh, We also see that there's a a blurring with the day of the Lord, where the Lord uh, comes back. Um, Some believe it starts with the rapture. Uh, then the second coming, and when the Lord comes back, you know, he's also uh, meeting judgment out on a sinful world. Now, this is also why we believe that 
our church believes in the pre-tribulation rapture. So here's the good news. For those of you who maybe don't know the Lord, who are new believers, if you're in Christ, if you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have a relationship with Jesus, we have mezzanine seats. We're kind of sitting up there in heaven. We're watching this all unfold, but we're in the safety and the, and the loving arms of our Father in heaven. Uh, because God pulls the church out. He pulls his people out before he judges the world. And there's something called typology, whether it's Noah's flood, all the righteous were removed before the earth was judged, whether it was the Passover, all the righteous were covered by the blood on the, on the lintel of the doorposts before judgment was instituted, even in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was no great shining example of a, a man of God, but he did have righteousness, him and his family, and they pulled his family out before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, and God never changes his M.O., so to speak. The Bible says he doesn't change. So why would he judge the righteous with the wicked now? He wouldn't. He'll take the righteous out, and then he judges the world. So there's your, your background. Now let's jump in. Verse 1 in chapter 6. Now I saw when the Lamb, which is Jesus, we saw that in the last chapter, opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, Jesus starts with breaking these seven seals on that scroll that the Father, that he took from the Father that he had in the throne, right? So he breaks the first seal. This is a picture of the counterfeit Christ or the Antichrist. If you haven't, don't know much about the Bible, I'm sure you've heard the Antichrist, right? You see Discovery Channel or some of these shows and they talk about the Bible and even if you know nothing about the scripture, you've heard of the Antichrist and we'll talk about him a little bit. Matthew 24 Four through five, just two verses, Jesus says this when he's telling his disciples about what's going to happen in the future. It says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Let's start with, now some believe that this white horse is a picture of Jesus, and I don't. And here's the difference. Revelation 19, Jesus is named. Jesus is glorious. Jesus has these crowns. Uh, Jesus comes with an army of his saints following him. The door opens in heaven and he comes down to the earth and he's mighty. He's got a sword, right, coming out of his mouth. Now, here, this rider is on a white horse, but we know that Satan always tries to provide a cheap counterfeit to what God does, right? The number of the beast is 666. God's perfect number is seven. We know that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, eternally existence in three persons, we're going to see in the book of Revelation, you're going to have Satan, you're going to have the, uh, the, the beast, the, the Antichrist, and you're going to have the false prophet. It's a counterfeit of the Trinity. So remember in your minds, everything that God does, Satan provides a cheap counterfeit. So you get the white horse um, that this, this person is riding on. The second thing is, interesting, he has a bow, but no arrows. You know, he's got a bow, but no arrows. Where are the arrows? Well, number one, this could be looked at as limited power. Jesus, on the other hand, has this incredible sword. This person has a bow but no arrows. It's a possibility of potential. It also could mean that he comes in peace at first, and then his reign ends with war and bloodshed. So the potential's there, comes in peace, ends with war and bloodshed. The third thing is both Jesus and the Antichrist have crowns. See, if you're not... 
really studying it, you'll miss this. Oh, that looks like it could be Jesus. Well, here's the difference. Jesus has, in the Greek, diademata, which says crown in the English, and the Antichrist has stephanos. Again, in the English, it just says crown. There's a difference, though. Diademata is a signal or a symbol of royalty and authority. The stephanos is just a victor's crown. Any conqueror can have this crown. So there's, there's, but not any conqueror can be the Messiah and the Son of God. So there's the difference. And four, it says it was given to him. God allows this person on the white horse to do his business for a time with limitations because we know that Satan hates mankind. We are the object of God's affection. It's the whole, this whole story of the gospel. We sinned. We were rebellious. We were wayward. God sent his only son to die on the cross for, for the atoning sacrifice to our sins. So God loves us and Satan wants to destroy us. So even the wicked on the earth, God allows only so much to happen with these judgments. And we're going to see that. There's an expression that says God lifted his protective hand. Okay? Uh, we're going to come back to that. Five. This person on the, the white horse is going to conquer. And we're going to see a lot of conquering under the Antichrist reign. Initially, it's going to be surreptitiously. It's going to be clandestine. It's going to be under the radar. And then later, it's going to be more overtly. And we'll see his two uh, modus operandi, so to speak. A few points here. The world is already set up for the Antichrist. Look around. Look at current events. Fifty years ago, Bible preachers were saying, the end of the world could come in our, our time period. Well, there was a lot of things that just weren't fit properly in the world stage. But we see that today, there are things that the scripture speaks about that are already starting to fit in. So the world is set up. Now listen, I don't live in fear. I'm joyful. I live a good life. The Lord has blessed me. I have a lot of privileges to be up here and to teach the word of God. I'm happy. I don't live in fear Oh, the end of the world. It's just another stage. The Lord will come back. He'll call his people home. Nothing to be afraid of if you're in Christ. And we'll talk about that. But the world is being set up for the Antichrist. This is the age of celebrity politicians. They all go on talk shows and comedy shows, and they have to be hip and they have to be cool. Now, what I'm not saying is this before we go any further. Disclaimer. Obama, McCain, this isn't about them. What I'm going to tell you is that there are things that happen in our election cycle recently that are a parallel to a things that are going to happen in the world that are going to set the stage for the Antichrist to come. Okay, I'm not saying either one of them are that. First of all, Christians jump on the bandwagon. And you know what? Let's just let it play out. So all you have to do is give the people what they want. That's the other portion here. If you look at the election, 50 viable issues, people of faith, secular people, Viable issues out there. All three debates were consumed with the economy. If you give the people what you want or you tell them what they want to hear, they'll follow you. Okay? Set the stage. Jesus said when he was on the earth, you can't serve God and mammon. You have to serve one or the other. Mammon was a little God at that time that you would pray to and you would sacrifice to. And that was the God of riches and wealth. Because you wanted to be wealthy, so you would pray to the God of mammon. Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. You have to make a decision. But our world is so concerned about the economy that nothing else seems to matter. For people of faith, unfortunately, too. It's all about the economy. 
Chuck Smith said several decades ago, who's the founder of Calvary, he said, even in his day, he said, if the world was to choose between God and Satan, the world would choose Satan. Now, you'd say, well, that sounds a little ridiculous. Well, 2,000 years ago, they said, give us Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Do away with this man, Jesus. So if the elections were held today between God and Satan, Satan might try to out-appearance God. He might try to out-charisma God. He might try to out-promise God. The world would definitely choose Satan. 1 Samuel 8, all the way back in the Old Testament. The people said to Samuel, hey, we want a king. The other nations have a king. Samuel went to God and said, listen, I have bad news. People want a king. And God said, listen, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me, Samuel. Don't take it too hard. Even back then, the people were looking for an earthly Messiah, and it's no different today. Now I'll say this too. Take another step and say the church is set up for the Antichrist. Now understand this. The true church, those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, okay, they're going to be with the Lord. That's the true church. But in every church across America, there are people who are unbelievers, there are people who are believers, and then there are people who are make-believers, who really don't have a relationship with Jesus, but feel like they're fulfilling some type of obligation. So when the rapture comes and Jesus calls his people home, in every church there's going to be a, a, a smattering of people still sitting in the seat saying, where did everybody go, right? The church is set up for the Antichrist. Charisma and appearance even of Christian celebrities. Look at some of the Christian music out there. Some of these musicians are just as attitude and rebellious as the secular ones. You know, you look at the album covers and they, you know, they're dressed like rebels and they, they got their arms folded and they got that look, you know. Like, I'm tough, I'm rebellious, I'm attitude by my music, right? Christian celebrities, no different. Many Christians are drawn more to personality than to substance. Oh, those old fiery preachers, they're, they're old news. Fire and brimstone talking about the truth. Get rid of them. You know, they're scaring the children. Move them away. We don't have tolerance in the Western Christianity for those type of people anymore. But that's exactly what we need in today's society. We're looking at the charismatic Christian preachers that look real handsome and wear the nice clothes and promise you the world. You know, if you come to the cross, God's going to make you rich. God's going to make you wealthy. God's going to solve all your problems. No, you're going to hell. I'm going to hell unless we're covered under the blood of Christ. That's the truth. And people don't want to hear it. You see these guys packing stadiums. It's because of appearance. Don't tell them anything offensive. Don't talk about hell. Don't talk about the blood of Christ. Don't talk about the only way is through the cross. You can't talk about that. Tell the people what they want to hear. Give the people what they want. Church is already being set up. Matthew 24, 24 says this. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders. This is out of Jesus' mouth. So as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. The elect, the true Christians, there's a line. They could almost be deceived according to that scripture. So where does that leave those who don't have a relationship with Jesus? They're going to be deceived. So this, this, this aura, this um, appearance, this new wave, um, uh, you know, this new genre is going to deceive so many people that if it was possible, even Bible-believing Christians would kind of say, hmm, I'm not really sure. But that, those definitely who don't know the Lord and don't know the Scripture will be deceived. That should be pretty scary if we don't have a strong walk with the Lord. 
Our present world is being set up for this very thing that's happening because Christians don't read their Bibles. And even if they do, John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will follow me. You will hear my words and you will follow them. That's called application. That's very important in our walk with the Lord. Verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Uh, The parallel scripture to that is Matthew 24, starting with verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, I like to put different... I like to look at the pool of ideas that men of God have looked at in this book and purported and said, I think that this is what this means. And some of them I'll I'll put forth and say, you know what, I I just don't agree with it. Some believe uh, when the Russia was really strong many years ago that this red horse was Russia. Now, I just don't agree with that. I think that there's a a bigger picture here. I don't think it's relegated to one country. So I, I reject that. Some believe that the rider on the second horse is also the Antichrist, the one on the first horse, but now he's kind of switched horses as his tactics have changed. Follow me here. First, and this, we know this from the scripture, the Antichrist will gain control of the world through peace, through promises. But then he will gain the remaining holdouts who are saying, nah, I'm, still not, I'm not, still not sold, through war, through a broken peace. Again, this is the second stage of the Antichrist uh, conquest. Now, It says it was granted. Again, God allowed it. This is hard to understand looking at this and seeing the judgment on the world by a loving God. Understand that that's the whole message of the cross. The message of the cross is that we're rebellious. We're sinful. We've turned away from God. We deserve judgment. However, God didn't say, well, forget about the judgment. Forget about holiness. Forget about sin. What he did was he devised a plan to send his son Jesus to come to the earth as a perfect sacrifice and shed his blood for the remission of our sins. So there still is judgment. There still is a price to pay for sin. But if you're in Christ, that price has been paid and you're free and clear of all those sins that you've committed and will commit. Now, the interesting thing about this this war horse is that now in our society, actually starting with the atomic bomb, there is the capacity of mankind to destroy one another on an exponential level. Do you know in World War II, does anybody know the the casualty rate of World War II combined? The number is 60 million dead, World War II. That, That number is unfathomable for human beings to do that to each other. 60 million people died in World War II. That's pretty obscene if you think about it. But now we have weapons that are so devastating that the next global war will make World War II pale in comparison. That's pretty sick if you think about it. That's what type of people we are. Verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm 
the oil and the wine. Going to Matthew 24, parallel scripture, Jesus says this. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places, and all these things are the beginning of sorrows. The black horse, he has a rider on it with scales or balances. You ever see those old-time scales? There's a a piece in the middle and then an arm with the chain and, and two cups. And you could tell how much you were weighing by either putting a known weight on one side and putting the food in, or, you know, there are balances and scales. I'm sure you've seen them. So this is what he has in his hands. Now, this is a picture of famine and inflation, probably caused by war. So you can see how these horses are really in harmony with each other, these judgments, these successive judgments. Scales and balances, rationing and shortages are oftentimes... um, prevalent in the time of especially World War. Uh, In World War II, even this country saw rationing. Uh, A lot of the goods and the steel and the the metals and the, uh, the, the, everything was diverted towards the war effort. So the common folk, uh, peacetime commodities, kind of went down because most of it was sent overseas. The attention was, was for the war effort. We don't really see that now because we don't really have a world war, so to speak. But this is what's going on. Now, to make you understand what this means, a denarius in those days was a day's wage. So basically what he's saying is uh, it only buys one quart of wheat for one day's wage. Now, let's put that in perspective. You go to work. You work a whole day. They give you your money. And all that money is good for is to buy a loaf of bread. You're lucky if that fills you for the day, let alone your family. So this is how bad things are in those days. And barley was one of the cheapest grains in those days, and it only bought, a denarius only bought three quarts of barley. Not good. Now, understand this. We talk about the Antichrist, we talk about the mark of the beast, and people say, well, why would anybody take the mark of the beast? How foolish is that? Well, think about this. It all ties together. If the Antichrist controls the food supply, he can legislate the mark of the beast. You go to the store, you, you get your, your, your groceries, you go put it on the table, you take out your cash, your credit card, and they say, well, where's your mark? Where's your laser skin? Where's your chip? Where's your eye scan? Whatever it is. Well, I don't have that, but here's my money. It's no good. The mark of the beast can be legislated, and the Bible says that no one can buy or sell food or commodities without this mark. It's a problem. What are you going to do? People will certainly take the mark of the beast to avoid starvation. Now, in this country, it's hard to know real chronic hunger. I mean, I've been hungry. And when you're really hungry, you have that like pain in your stomach. Now think of these countries where these kids are walking around and they're all skinny and their bellies are distended. Chronic hunger, malnutrition. You know, it's, it's not good that they have to go through this, right? But chronic hunger will drive a person to do very desperate things. There's many instances of cities that have been besieged by armies and they resorted to cannibalism because they, they had to stop the gnawing pain in their stomachs. So, and again, it's my speculation, but if if he's legislating the mark of the beast, most people will accept it because they're hungry. He says, do not harm the oil and the wine. I had a little trouble with this one. Um, There's a few things that are speculated. Number one, they say that, well, the rich will be spared because oil and the wine, the rich will always be able to afford. Not so sure about that one. There's another one that says, uh, basically, don't harm the oil and the wine. If everything is destroyed, it will be large-scale annihilation because everyone will starve to death. So even the basic, some basic staples will still remain and people can still eat. Uh, that sounds pretty decent. Now, there's another interesting conjecture, is that wine 
Remember Jesus spoke about the wineskins. He said that if you have new wine, you can't put it in old wineskins, lest they break and the wine spill out. The old wineskins, the dry old wineskins, were a picture of the old dead religious system. And the wine was a picture of the Holy Spirit. You can't contain the Holy Spirit. Okay? So you had to have that, that new wineskin. You had to have uh, that new covenant to be able to hold the Holy Spirit. Also, in the Old Testament, oil was a picture of the Holy Spirit. So some believe that this screams Holy Spirit. In other words, even in these difficult times, God will still be working There'll still be miracles, and he'll still be active in saving souls. And as we go through the book of Revelation, it is a very bleak time, but we do see those things happening. Verse 7. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill it with sword with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the field. The fourth seal, the pale horse. One sat on him was death, and Hades followed. Now, I actually looked up Grim Reaper. <laughs> I didn't know, I don't know, did the Grim, I actually looked it up, and I couldn't find the, the origin of the Grim Reaper. I don't know if some, you know, because a lot of things come from the Scripture. People will, will embellish or make things based on what they've read in Scripture. You know, so I don't know if the Grim Reaper actually came from this guy. But the writer, he's a ghastly fellow. And actually, when I go into the Greek, this is fun. I really enjoyed studying this. You really, the meaning comes out more. The Greek word for pale, for pale horse, is the word chloros. Think of chlorophyll. There's actually a human condition called chlorosis, if you're in the medical field. And this is where, while you're alive, your skin starts to take on a pale greenish hue. It's a, it's a condition um, caused by, I think, a, a, a missing of, of iron or something like that. But chlorophyll. So this horse is pale green. He's a deathly sick color. Some have used the, <laughs> you're making faces. Some have used the, some of you have, or some have used the term uh, puke green, really sick. Now, being in law enforcement for a long time, unfortunately, I've seen a lot of dead bodies. I've seen a lot of people who fresh kills, so to speak, and you look at them and I can tell um, that they've died because they have that, the blood leaves them and they they're actually take on a pale green color. So this horse is really a color of death. This is the embodiment and the personification of death. I tell you what, I wouldn't want that horse following me. That'd be pretty awfully scary to look at. So the Grim Reaper usually walks around with a sickle and he walks. Now this time he's on a horse, so he's going to get you. (laughs) If he wants you, he's coming for you. Death claims the body uh, for those who, you know, for those who die. And for the Christ rejecting claims, Hades claims the soul. So Hades is kind of in tow here. Until the great white throne judgment, which we'll see where both Hades and death are thrown into the lake of fire with the rebellious. This seal causes wide-scale death and destruction, probably as a result of the last three horses and riders. And it says a quarter of the earth was destroyed by hunger, death, sword, and beasts. quarter of the earth. Do the math. Today, that would be over a billion people. Remember, we had the figure of 60 million in World War II. Devastated Europe. The Black Plague devastated Europe. It devastated us, but not so much uh, World War II. But here, you're going to have over a billion people that are just going to be wiped out by these, these seals. Pretty amazing. Now, just a little side commentary because I'm an animal lover. Uh, there's going to be death by beasts too. 
if you look at the, the, the uh, stages of animals, right? In the beginning, when God gave man and woman, you know, subjugation of the creation, he made animals, I don't know, maybe like a big, God wanted to make a big petting zoo. I don't know what it was. Maybe a little fur therapy. What is it, dry your tears with fuzzy ears or something like that? But animals loved people in the beginning. But when the fall came, a lot of nasty things came as a result of that. And one of them was, it's right in the scripture, that God gave animals fear of us. And you know, most wild animals, you go to them, they'll either run away or they'll attack you. But they're afraid of humans. Um, in the tribulation, he gives them contempt for us. They hate humans, right? And in the millennial kingdom, after that, they love us again, as in everything's restored, as in the original creation. Pretty wild. Um, you ever see those movies? Remember the old Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds, <laughs> where the birds start attacking people? Then there was another one a little later called Day of the Animal. You know, people's pets started attacking them. Everywhere they went, you got attacked by animals. There's a lot of real freaky movies, real B-movies out there that are really weird, but as we go through the book of Revelation, there's going to be some wacky things that are going to happen on the earth. You know, those that are seeking these awful scorpions come down and, and, and inject and uh, sting mankind, and they're going to want to die and seek death, and they'll, they won't be able to die no matter what they do. So, you know, zombie movies and stuff, I don't know, but as we read the book, it's pretty wild the things that are going to happen on the earth. So maybe it's not too far-fetched. It is a brutal time, but we see that God is still merciful and still gives those a chance to repent because in our next seal, we're going to see those that go through the tribulation and go through these judgments, and if they turn to Christ, God will accept them and bring them home. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren would, who would be killed as they were was completed. Now, just read Matthew. Again, there's a lot of parallels here. Matthew 24, 9 and 10. Jesus said when he was on the earth, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Pretty awful time. I believe this seal of those under the altar are a picture of the tribulation saints, those martyred under the time of the tribulation. Some will say, well, it's a picture of the saints of all mankind uh, from the time of Christ who have been martyred. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my case to you why I don't believe that. Uh, I think the scripture is, is answers itself. But this group is killed for holding true to God under tremendous opposition. And I suspect, again, I suspect Americans are so worldly and so materialistic that I think that if tomorrow the laws were changed and said Christians will be beheaded, you cannot be a Christian. You're causing too many problems in the world. I guarantee you that day a lot of Christians will go out to their cars and start pulling off those fishes off their cars because I believe that a lot of Christians are in it for the culture. And, for, and it's true. It's, it's biblical. It's not just me being a jerk. You know, it's in here, and we'll see that. But I believe that persecution really uh, purifies the church and really sees who's really a Christian and who's pretending to be. So this is what's going on here. It, it's, it's, it's awful. It's persecution. The government's against them. Their friends are against them. And they still say, you know what? I still believe in Jesus. I don't care what you do to me. 
this is what's happening to these people. So the altar in the Old Testament, well, let's talk about the altar. In the Old Testament is where the sacrificial lambs were slaughtered. And we know that the Bible tells us that everything that God asked Moses to make on the earth was a copy of the perfection and those things in heaven. So here, now there's an altar in heaven somehow, and these people are under God's altar, but it's a special place of honor. These are where the tribulation saints wait out full justice to their fellow tribulation saints. Now, number one, they're crying for vengeance. And this is where I'm building my case. These Christians are crying for vengeance. They're in the presence of God the Father, and they're acting like that. Well, that's not how Christians are supposed to act. Well, Jesus, when he was on the cross, said, Father, forgive my persecutors, for they do not know what they do. Don't lay this sin against them. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, same thing. Don't hold it against them. And as they were stoning him, he had the face of an angel and received the Lord. And the medieval Christians who were burned at the stake would sing psalms as they were burning in the fire and ask for forgiveness for their persecutors. And even today, in some of the very oppressive countries against Christians, there's a lot of reports of them saying, Lord, just like Jesus and Stephen. So why do these people cry for vengeance? kind of brings us back to the Old Testament where David and many Old Testament uh, characters cried for vengeance. Break their teeth. Destroy my enemies. So what is the, what's the disconnect here? The disconnect is Jesus ushered in the age of grace, the church age. And where in the Old Testament, you would want revenge, an eye for an eye. If somebody wronged you in the New Testament or in the church age, in the age of the Holy Spirit, the age of grace, you asked, you know what, Lord, I want to forgive my persecutors. Now, what's happening here is the church age is over. That's why they're crying for vengeance. In the tribulation, there is no church. They've been raptured. The aggregate moving of the Holy Spirit, aggregately, is, is the restraining of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Thessalonians about the Antichrist. The restrainer is still restraining him, but when the Holy Spirit is done restraining, the man of sin will be revealed. So you see this, this stages, the fullness of the Gentiles. All these things, have, the planets have aligned, and all these things are lined up so that now we're kind of going back to that seven-year period in the, in the book of Daniel where the angel said to Daniel, this is for your people, the Jews. The Jews now, Israel... It is, t- is taking center stage, and largely the church age has been removed. Two, they're crying for justice. I don't know that in heaven you're allowed to sin and get away with it. So they're in heaven, they're under the altar, they're crying for justice. What, let's talk about that. They want to right the wrongs in the world and punish the wicked. Justice is ingrained in us. Think about the civil rights movement. Well, that's not fair. Whites, blacks, different. You know, think about slavery. Think about injustice in the world. That bothers us. In our hearts, we long for justice. You see a child molester or a murderer get off on a technicality. That bothers you. You yell at the television. It bothers you, even as a Christian. You know, you see the poor get trampled on by governments who don't care about them. And they live in lavish palaces. It bothers us. That's part of the reason why I became a police officer. And then you realize that the system works against you. But justice is important. And We've been brainwashed by the politically correct media as Christians to believe that justice isn't good. That's not true. Justice is good. Yes, Jesus said to turn the other cheek, but Romans 13 is also in the New Testament, which talks about government having to mete out punishment for those who are sinners and hurting other members of society because ultimately God wants purity and he doesn't want chaotic um, Mad Max type of uh, society. That's why we have police and military, etc., So justice is good. Don't be brainwashed to believing that it's not good. There's too many excuses in our society made for sin. And even Christians start to think differently based on watching too much television. 
Shut that stinking TV off and get back into your Bibles. Okay, that's what we need to be looking at, not being dictated by a bunch of godless people on television telling us what we should believe as Christians. So there's a time of justice. Need justice. <laughs> okay, enough of my tirade. Giving, they were given white robes and told to rest until the last Christian martyr. All right, the white robes, picture of sanctification, picture of purity, picture of they did their jobs well, and, and that's what that symbolizes there. Now, before we wrap up, just a few quick things. This scripture, especially this seal, eliminates the doctrine that the Seventh-day Adventists hold of soul sleep. When you die, you're just kind of in limbo. You know, you're kind of anesthetized. It's a problem because the Apostle Paul says that if you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. It's like, again, walking into another room. It's a different stage in your life, but you're not in limbo. You're not in soul sleep. Uh, These martyrs, check it out. These martyrs are consciously speaking to God. They're having a conversation uh, with the Lord, right? As well as they're having the ability to understand current events on the earth. So they're not in limbo. They're not anesthetized. And that's important to understand. Consciousness is not anesthetized in heaven or in hell. Okay? Whether it's the wicked or the righteous, we continue to know and be aware of our surroundings. Unfortunately for the wicked, for eternity, they're going to be aware that they're in hell, which is not good for them. But the good news is God allows anyone to turn, repent of their sins, and to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and confess their sins, and God will accept them. No one has to go to hell. It's a choice that people make. Two, this also eliminates the idea, and some hold this idea, that nobody will be saved during the tribulation. Well, not according to the scripture. Okay? And listen, I've had discussions with really good, God-fearing Christians who've studied the Bible. And listen, I don't have to agree with everything they agree with. But if I say something from the pulpit, I'm going to back it up and build my foundation with the scripture. All right? Um, those that resist Christ now and are left behind will go through a truly miserable time. Uh, but I believe they can still be saved. And we're going to see instances where God still calls people to repent and stops all the judgments. And there's like silence in the whole world. And he asked them, you know, the angels, give glory to God. Come back to him. Now, is this all mean of God? No. He's really giving a Christ and God-rejecting world what they want. God says, you don't want me. You know, you want a charismatic leader. The world wholesale doesn't reject the rider on the white horse. Most of the world, you know, their eyes glaze over and and he's making all kinds of promises to them and he's uh, asking for peace. Was it the Knesset a few years ago in Israel, uh, part of the ruling body, uh, that they were interviewed and they were saying, uh, when the Messiah comes, this is a few years ago, does he have to be Jewish? And they said, no. All he has to do is bring peace. They're so desperate in Israel for peace that they don't even care if he's Jewish. This is opening the door, the world, to this leader to come in and promote this false peace and in three and a half years to break it and wreak havoc upon the earth. But the people of the earth, the earthlings, will largely be really thrilled with this this guy. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to solve all of our problems. They're going to throw celebrations. This guy is great. Who is able to make war with the beast, the Bible says? We're going to see that, the Antichrist. So God is just, he's not mean here. He's giving the people what they want. This is what you want. You don't want me. You've rejected me. First Samuel 8 in the Old Testament. You've rejected me in the first century through my son Jesus. You're rejecting me again. So here, have at it. Here's your guy. He's all yours. And that's really interesting as a Christian to know that 
we have free will and we should be in tune to the Holy Spirit. But if we choose to go our own separate way and God will gently, lovingly convict us and tell us and maybe through other people and maybe through our conscience. But sometimes as Christians, we say, you know what, I really want to do this. And then God goes, it's all yours. And then when you get in trouble, you can't say, oh, God, let me fall. God did this to me. No. Just like Balaam uh, on the donkey. The donkey crushed his foot because he saw the angel with the flaming sword. And Balaam had to go anyway, and he beat the donkey. And the donkey said, why are you beating me? And he's having a conversation with an animal. You know? He's so angry and maddened that he wanted Balak's riches that he's talking to a donkey, and it doesn't even phase him that the donkey could speak back to him. Right? And he keeps going. And Balaam's end was destruction. So, and Balaam actually started out as a prophet of God. Go figure. This is really important. The question to the American Christian is, which Messiah do we want? Are we looking for an earthly leader to solve all of our problems? Or are we looking to Jesus Christ, the only Savior? I actually, I feel bad for our, our current president. The expectation level on this man, he's just a man, 47-year-old man, is huge. He's not going to be able to make everyone happy. You know, The only one who's going to fill your every expectation is Jesus Christ himself. And that's important to see. We'll have no king but Jesus himself. So, if you know the Lord, none of this stuff should bother you. If you, do, if you don't know the Lord, some of this stuff should scare you. And if I'm scaring you, then good. Because when I go to heaven, I did my job. I warned you. I may come off as a jerk now, but if you're in heaven, you're going to look at me and say thank you. And I'm going to say, you know what, I did my job. Let's eat. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, I love to eat. So, the bottom line is, it's your choice. God loves you. If you don't know the Lord, he loves you. He's calling you. He's calling you through this book today. And at the end of the service, we'll give you uh, that opportunity to receive him. So, again, whether we choose the Lord or we don't, it's our choice. Let's pray.